This is taken from Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabites, and I'm kind of muffled at work, uh, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She looked it up, she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my service until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maid so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the 
barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, we just ask today that you would do with this what you need to do in order for us to walk a closer walk with thee. Speak through the mouth of our pastor today as he informs us of what you are to expect of us in our daily walk with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. morning. (laughs) Again, you should open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2 if you've not done that already. If you need a Bible, there's quite a few extras. They're blue, located on that wall over there. You're welcome to keep that Bible if you don't already have one. Ruth chapter 2 will be our sermon text for this morning. Thank you, Harvey, for reading that. We are going to continue to read, of course, each chapter in its entirety. If you read the entire book of Ruth in one sitting, it takes about 15 minutes. Almost certainly the people of God throughout history, I'm thinking of Old Testament Israel, heard it read all at one time. So we will be okay, I think, with one chapter at a time. You should open your Bibles there, and as you do, I want to talk to you a minute about stories, and a particular kind of story, or maybe even just a moment in stories that we love, that we all find compelling and attractive. And I mean the the moment in a story where you have some hopeless situation that looks terrible and it's miraculously reversed. Everything looks lost and then there emerges this unexpected glimmer of hope that you didn't see coming. So maybe if you prefer movies, the fighter pilot is trapped in enemy lines, he's in trouble, there's no way out until at the last minute some unexpected deliverance comes And you get all worked up because maybe his buddy comes and delivers him or he performs some aerial maneuver and he's delivered in a way you never saw coming. Or kids, kids, listen to me kids, I'm going to talk about Toy Story. Y'all seen that moment in Toy Story where all of the toys are headed towards this awful furnace and they hold hands and they wait for their doom and then they escape. And everyone is just thrilled with the escape that you never saw coming. There's this moment. Or maybe if books are more your thing, you know Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Fantastic novel. You should read it. And yes, there is a partial spoiler in what I'm about to say. But to be brief on the story, you have the Bennett family. You think of, I'm not sure what century, maybe 1700s, 1800s, England, somewhere in there. And they're in anxious distress because their youngest and Definitely, well, perhaps most thoughtless daughter named Lydia has impulsively and foolishly run away with this charming young man, George Wickham. And it turns out he's not so charming. He's actually a notorious scandal, scoundrel, pardon me. He's a bad guy, and she's run away with him without telling anybody. It's a big problem because not only will she be miserable in her marriage, but it also will mean public disgrace to their family, which in that culture came with significant consequences. But then there's this parallel track that unfolds in the story, if you know how it goes. There's another character, Mr. Darcy. He's cold, he's austere, he's prideful, and he is fabulously wealthy. He's the sort of man who would look with disdain on foolish young girls who naively run away with deceptive young men. 
And so there's this moment when everything looks lost for the Bennett family. They're in agony, both for their, their daughter or sister, whichever you are, and for their family. There's no solutions. And then in that moment, when everything looks lost, they get word that the wealthy and prideful Mr. Darcy has showed up in the same town in the same neighborhood where the absconding couple has gone off to live. Why is he there? What could he possibly be doing? And Jane Austen, the author, she deftly leads you through the story, not really telling you what's going to happen, but doing just enough to get the wheels spinning in your mind, thinking, what could this all be about? It seems impossible. But your gears are turning. Will the unthinkable happen? She cracks the door just enough so that outshines just the faintest glimmer of hope. And we love this. We love these moments when the disaster looks like maybe, just maybe, there is a way out. Maybe there's something that can make the impossible possible. Why is that? We love this because we long for this in our own lives. All of us. Maybe you've experienced something like this on a very practical level. Maybe the doctor thought you probably had some sort of tumor based on what he saw or felt as a mass. And then you get the MRI results thinking, oh, for sure, they were going to be cancerous, and lo and behold, nope, a benign tumor. And all of a sudden, maybe you've experienced something like that. We love these moments. We love them because we feel acutely the sorrows and disappointments of our own lives, and we don't want those sorrows to have the last word. We don't want it to be an unhappy ending. That's why we love movies with happy endings. That's why almost all of them have (laughs) happy endings. We know that things aren't right. We feel a dissatisfaction with life. We have this sense that things aren't right with us. A sense that we're empty. Our lives maybe are pointless. Why all this difficulty? What am I living for? We feel unsatisfied. And we don't always feel it, but we do long for it. At least we resonate in stories with that glimmer of hope. We want something to make us right. And the author of Ruth knows this about us. God knows this about us also. And it's this glimmer of hope that shows up in Ruth chapter 2. We need to hear what God has to say to us. Let's pray. Let's ask him to help us. Father, you tell us that everything which is known, or the things rather, which are known about you are evident within us because you made it evident to us. In other words, we have revelation, we just don't believe it. We have evidence and we suppress it. We stuff it down, don't want to hear it. We confess that, Father. We are those people who would hear good news, especially about you and your character and what you've done, the fulfillment of your promises. We hear and we suppress the truth. We're born that way. We still tend, like sheep, to go astray and do the same thing. We confess that as sin. We praise you that our salvation, for those of us who are Christians, depends not at all on our ability to do better but depends solely on what Christ has done, saving people who are justified, not by earning, but as a gift, by your grace, 
through your redemption, which is all bound up in Christ Jesus. He was a propitiation in his blood on our behalf. Thank you, Father. So even people like us, truth suppressors, can become fully clean, like the most inexorable stain made purely white. That's us because of the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, for the confidence that we can have in Christ and his sufficiency to save people like us. Thank you for the small groups in this church, Lord. Thank you for the one that Millard leads for us. God, I pray that this group would be fruitful for the members of the church, and especially in this moment, I remember the folks who are not members, visitors. I pray you would richly bless them, that Christ would become their treasure, Lord, increasingly, and bless bless the group in just that same way. Father, we pray for other churches, Restoration Fellowship down there in East Memphis, and their elders, Jeremy and Charles and John and Sean and Chris. Thank you for this fellowship. Recently merged multiple churches. Help them to have the blessed unity that comes with having one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, is over all and through all and in all. Give them unity that is birthed from your oneness and the oneness of the gospel. Far away, Father, we just prayed for the Reese family. Lord, as they go, I pray that as clearly as it can be proclaimed by broken clay pots, weak like us and like Bob and Glenda, as clearly as the light of the gospel can shine as they go, we pray you'd make it to shine. And we pray that you would answer the prayers of your people, the prayers of this church, as we uphold them as they go. Father, thank you for the land in which we live. We pray today, as you taught us, to pray for these federal judges, the appellate courts, the Supreme Court, the circuits, Lord, all these men and women who serve, thinking of justice. God, I pray that you would help them to do justice in the land. And for us, Father, this this chapter, which is so different than the one that came before, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we don't just hear something, but our hearts open up and take in something by perception and by receiving. Our hearts would take in what you have to say to us in your word today so that we would be forever changed. Our priorities and emotions would be recalibrated. Our ability to perceive you and adore you would be invigorated, grown, turned on so that we see and esteem as we should. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ruth chapter 2, we'll approach it in three parts this morning. First will be context. The second will be the sovereignty of God. We talked on that last week. And then third, the lavish kindness of Boaz and of God. So context, sovereignty, and lavish context. Ah, kindness, there it is. Context, sovereignty, lavish kindness. Pardon me. So context, I just want to remind you where we're at. Maybe you weren't here last week. We are in the Old Testament book of Ruth. We're in chapter 2. Last week's sermon covered chapter 1. The opening verse in Ruth tells us that the story occurred during the days of Judges, those days in which there was no king in Israel, in which every man did what was right in his own eyes. 
a dark chapter in the history of the people of God. More on the idea of a king in a minute. And in that first chapter, we're also told that a man named Elimelech took his family, his wife, and his two sons, and they became refugees. They fled from the land where God was dwelling with his people to a neighboring country called Moab, where a regional and tribal god, little G, was ruling. His name was Chemosh. They became refugees to try to find food. And while they're there as refugees, tragedy piles on top of tragedy. The patriarch, the breadwinner, the one who provided for all of their needs, Elimelech, dies, leaving his wife, Naomi, with her two adult sons. Each of those sons marries two Moabite women, one named Ruth, one named Orpah. And ten years later, each of the sons also dies, leaving three widows all alone in economic destitution. No hope. They're in a really bad way. Naomi's undone. She's a widow, a bereaved mother, a refugee, living in a pagan land with only two Moabitess daughters-in-law to show for any of it. Where is God in the midst of all that? Last week, we took a sober look at the sovereignty of God over suffering, both Naomi's and our own. We reckoned with the fact that God was sovereign over the famine that sent them to Moab in the first place and that God is sovereign over all the trials and pains of our own lives, every single one of them represented in this room. In the book of Ruth, God is like a master director of a play, but always directing from offstage. The narrator only gives hints and passing phrases, and yet it's still clear by their cumulative weight and by his skill in writing that God is the one directing the entire unfolding drama. Chapter 1 encloses, or closes with those tragedies. The darkness has set in completely. It's a dark night. There's no moon. There's no stars to illumine the gloomy landscape. Everything is folding in on Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. All hope seems lost. And just before we pick up, here in chapter 2, I want to remind you of how the book of Ruth ends. I mentioned before, it's best read in a single sitting, so it's no spoiler to talk about how it ends, because I think you're meant to understand that as you process the first parts. I mentioned before that the book takes place in the days when the judges governed. There was no king in Israel. That's an important word, king, K-I-N-G. And it should be striking to you. The book opens by saying there's no king in Israel. And at the end of chapter 4, the book concludes by saying the lineage of a king is established. That's not on accident. The book begins by telling us in chapter 1 of the calamities of a godless and kingless people. Even Elimelech's family is not immune from all of the tragedies that are unfolding for the people of God in those days. That's how it begins. But it ends by pointing us forward to better times. The sun is going to come up and the darkness is not going to last forever. That's how Ruth chapter 4 concludes. A king would come. In Genesis 3, the fall, God had promised that everything that had just totally gone wrong would one day be put right. The seed of the woman would come and she would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So from that moment onward, there are pending promises waiting for that seed of the woman to come and put everything right. And then in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is told, that one of his seeds, that means descendant, if you're not sure about that language, 
would come, and what would he do? He would bless all the nations. Ah, so now we're waiting for another descendant. Not only of the woman, but now also of Abraham. And in Genesis 49, when the patriarch Israel blesses all of his sons, we're told that the scepter, that's what a king holds, would not depart from which tribe? Judah. Ah, what family is Elimelech from? Judah. Genesis 3, the seed of the woman is coming. Genesis 12, the seed of Abraham is coming. Genesis 49, somebody from the tribe of Judah is coming and he's going to be a king and the scepter will not depart from him. At the time of Naomi's undoing, all of these promises are pending. Their fulfillment was awaited. And it shouldn't come as any surprise that the author of Ruth then is very careful to connect the child born to Ruth at the end of chapter 4 as fulfilling or at least inaugurating the fulfillment, bringing forward, bringing closer the fulfillment of what God had promised all those years before. Through Ruth's lineage would come the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and he would even be from the family line of Judah where Bethlehem is located, the very town from which Elimelech, Naomi, and the two boys set out. None of that is an accident. God is sovereignly at work, bringing forward, marching forward the history of redemption to accomplish his purpose. I said before that the book of Ruth, nowhere does the narrator say, and God is sovereign. But if you know what's going on in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Bible, you know the promises that are pending. All the time you can see God marching forward his magnificent promises that are one day going to climax in the person of Christ. Not an afterthought. Always the plan. Sovereignly orchestrated. And as we'll see, even through the granular little details of the lives of Naomi and Ruth and me and you. If you zoom in, you see what God is doing in reversing the fate of one family. If you zoom out, you see the way that God is reversing the fate of one family in order to reverse the fate of all peoples, including us. In other words, God's glimmer of hope for Naomi and Ruth turns out to be a glimmer of hope for you and me. And as we said earlier, when we commissioned our brother and sister to go to Africa, all the nations must be glad. They will. They will be glad in the glory of Christ. Ruth is an essential part of that great story. Let's dig into the text. Our second point is sovereignty. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, if you're reading the story, like we just finished chapter 1, this new character just comes out of nowhere. It's like, very much like a play, and a new person just walks onto the stage, and the narrator introduces him. His name is Boaz, and the narrator points out two very significant things about this man, Boaz. First, his wealth, or it could mean prominence in the community. Translations take it differently. It's the same phrase, by the way, that's used of the woman in Proverbs 31. An excellent wife who can find that lady. 
the same language. Boaz is a man like that. Ruth, in the same book, is a woman like that. It's the same language, all three places. He's that kind of man. And then secondly, the narrator points out his shared ancestry with deceased Elimelech. In other words, he's from Elimelech's family. If they had family reunions, Elimelech was there and Boaz was there. They're in the same family. That's what he's saying. In fact, he says it twice. Look at the verse. If you're an Old Testament Israelite, hopefully you don't miss it. We might miss it, but they did not miss it. Look at there. He, he calls him a kinsman of Naomi's husband. And then he repeats it in the same verse, saying he was of the family of Elimelech. That's Naomi's husband. Twice. He doesn't want you to miss the point. This man is in their family. Why does that matter? What's the big deal? If you were an ancient Israelite, that glimmer of hope moment that I described would have just happened to you when you read Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. That's the moment. This man, this wealthy, well thought of in the community, man of great character, even in their family, has just come onto the stage. That's the glimmer of hope moment. But to feel it, you have to know something about the Old Testament background here, or it won't land on you like it's supposed to. There are actually two very significant, not directly related, but overlapping somewhat in content, Old Testament issues that come into play. The first is the law of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. This was a command, a decree of the living God given to Moses in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Here's an example from Leviticus 25, verse 5. There are other examples that are related, but they're like this in their quality. The text reads, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So, again, what's the context? What does that mean? When Israel entered the Promised Land, they were given inheritances, land inheritances, that were for particular families. Imagine, then, if the whole family dies out. Where does that land go? That's a problem, right? You find things in the Old Testament law that are meant to try to prevent that from happening. It actually happens to Zelophehad's, Zelophehad, I think that's how you pronounce it, his daughters. There's only ladies left, and inheritance ran through the men. So it's a big deal to these Israelites that the inheritances that are allotted stay in the family. Well, what if you lose the land because you're so poor that to get some extra cash, you've got to sell your land? Now it's not in the family anymore. So what should happen? Well, God provided for that through what's called a kinsman, means family, redeemer. And the way it would work is you would have a near relative who was in a financial position to be able to come in and make the rescue. And he would buy back the land from whomever justly bought it and make sure it stayed in the family. Not as a greedy way that people talk about staying in the family these days. That's not the idea. The idea is to make sure that the allotments that God gave stay where God put them. That's the law of the kinsman redeemer. It's not only land. It also happens if you were so poor that you sold yourself into slavery to pay off your debts. Your able, financially able, near male relative, the kinsman redeemer, would come and he would buy you out of slavery. You had this person who was in a family or a kinship structure meant to come and provide for those members of the family who are in distress. That's the law of the kinsman redeemer. There's a variety of circumstances. I mentioned 
selling the land. I mentioned being sold into slavery. But guess what example never comes in any of the kinsman redeemer laws? Marrying the wife. So there's parallels here with what Boaz ends up doing with Ruth, but they're not exact. They're in the same stratosphere. But you can't go back and find that a man like Boaz, a distant relative, must marry Ruth. You can't find that. And that ends up being part of the point. More on that in a moment. I said there were two Old Testament issues. Some of you might be thinking of the other one called the Leveret marriage. What about when a brother dies, he was married, but he dies, and his wife hasn't had any children yet, and he's got another unmarried brother. You remember this story? You know it because Jesus encounters it. The Sadducees try and trap him with this story. You might also know it because there's this really tragic, awful saga with, ironically enough, Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. We'll skip the details for now, but it's the same law that's in place there. Same principle for sure. The Leveret marriage. You might be thinking it has to do, by the way, with Levites, Levites and Levi. It does not. The word leveret, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, leveret, actually comes from the Latin word levere, which means husband's brother. That's where it comes from. What's, what's the idea? You have a brother who's married. He dies, has no kids. His wife is left childless. That brother's name is going to be, quote, blotted out from Israel. He'll have no descendants. So the way that God provided is the unmarried brother marries the wife, raises up children for his brother, as it were, and the first one is to be named after the deceased brother so that his name will not be, quote, blotted out from Israel, end quote. But I said before the law of the kinsman redeemer, I hope I'm not losing you, it's not exact, right? Well, this leveret marriage law is also not exact in Ruth's case, that's what I mean. It doesn't apply perfectly. The puzzle pieces don't just fit in perfectly such that Boaz had to do it. He didn't. He's not Malon's brother. Boaz is a distant relative, not a brother, not required to marry Ruth. Additionally, when Boaz and Ruth do end up having a baby, guess what they don't name him? Malon, right? The law doesn't fit exactly. The kinsman-redeemer law doesn't fit exactly. The leveret marriage law doesn't fit exactly. As I said before, that is part of the point. Why? For the answer to that question, we will have to wait until our next point. Right now, we're on sovereignty. How does this relate to sovereignty? If you had a general familiarity, even a robust That would be better, familiarity with the Old Testament. When you read in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2 and in verse 3 that this wealthy, well-respected man in the community, man of integrity, man of means, male, shows up, your ears would perk up like a dog in the woods that hears a twig break. Oh, and you're going to watch and see what's going to happen. You're meant to have that moment when you read Ruth 2 chapter 1. It's not a coincidence that that man of all men comes on the stage. And enters the story. This is the sovereign purpose of God at work. One of the only people who can help these destitute women just walked onto the stage. God did it. The narrator is helping you to see that God governs their lives down to the smallest detail. 
or he, of all people, wouldn't have shown up. And there's one final element. I heard someone say in our Sunday school, uh, God winked. I don't remember who said that. But look at verse 3. God's sovereignty. Verse 3 in the NASB reads, She, Ruth, departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Here's the phrase. And she happened to come. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. She just so happened to end up in that field. Now, the NASB has a footnote that says that the Hebrew is literally, this is kind of weird and wonky, her chance chanced upon. And sometimes there are old Hebrew idioms that sound weird in English, but this one's weird in Hebrew. They don't talk like this. This is weird. You can't find anything else in the Hebrew Old Testament that sounds like that. Her chance chanced upon? Very unusual. What's the author doing? I read one commentator who suggested the phrase be translated like this. By sheer luck, she came to Boaz's field. Now what's going on there? Does the narrator believe in luck? Does he really? Does he mean that like that? Is that what he means? Or is he writing his story with literary skill and artistry with something like a wink She just so happened to end up in Boaz's field. What's the point of that? Without saying God is sovereign, the narrator just said God is sovereign. That's the point. That's why he puts that language just like that. He's adroitly signaling that Ruth just so happened to end up in the very best field of all the fields in Judah. The only or the ideal person to deliver her is now on the stage. He's sovereign over the tragedies and he's sovereign over the glimmers of hope and the provisions that show up in our lives. The too good to be true details like this one. This is our third and final point. This too good to be true, lavish kindness of Boaz and Boaz's God. We got to dig into the story now. We just scratch the surface. We've got to watch as it unfolds. Verse 2. Now that Ruth and Naomi are back from the fields, Ruth says, let me go and glean in the fields. Harvest. That's what glean means. Harvest in the fields. And this is, of course, if you know your Old Testament, that's a dangerous thing about reading the Old Testament. You've got to read all these parts of the Old Testament to know what in the world's going on. They don't explain it all the time. This is in keeping, this desire to glean in the field edges as a poor widow who's destitute with Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, in which the Israelite farmers are told as they're harvesting in their fields, don't harvest around the edges, leave it. Why? For the poor, right? For the destitute, the widow, the refugee, the orphan. Leave some on the ground so they can go pick it up. It'd also be in keeping with Deuteronomy 24, 19, in which if you're an agricultural employee working in a big field and you have a bunch of bundles or sheaves of some kind of grain and you're loading things up in the wagon to take it back to the storehouse and you realize, oh, we forgot a few over there. Let's go back and get them. Nope. Deuteronomy 24, 19 says, if you forget them, leave them. Why? It will be for the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, right? What Ruth asks to do is exactly in keeping with specific precepts from the law of God. She wanted to go and be a charity case in the fields outside Bethlehem just to survive. It was life or death. 
So she goes on this dangerous mission. I say dangerous because these are the dark days when the judges governed and women were routinely abused. Dangerous. She's all alone, no protection. You're not meant to miss that about Ruth and Naomi's situation. They are vulnerable, just like an orphan is vulnerable. She goes out to labor in the fields of Bethlehem. Now imagine, use your mind's eye, imagine. Endless, vast, swaying fields of golden barley. It's golden when you harvest it. Swaying in the wind. Beautiful. The smells, the sights, the blue sky. That's where she goes. She walks out there. She sees the foreman. She sees all his workers under his charge, slicing away with their sickles, cutting down swaths of barley, tying them up, putting them in bundles, the harvest. This is just after a famine. Imagine the joy that they would have had in a harvest year after a famine. She goes to the foreman and she asks permission, permission to glean at the field edges. Let me just be a beggar here, please. So she's begging in one sense, but in another sense, you'll notice that God's way of caring for the poor actually clothes her with dignity because she will only be rewarded with food if she will work for it. She has to go get it. She has to harvest it, pick it up. It's hard to tell what happens next in the story. It's not really clear. Different translations take it differently. Does she work all morning and then take a rest in the hut? Or does she sit in the hut all morning? Translations take it differently. It's hard to know. I don't think any of that is the point. I think the point is what happens when Boaz, the landowner, the lord of the estate, shows up. We don't want to get lost on that. When Boaz shows up in verse 4. Think of this. He's out there in his fields. He's the landowner. He's in charge. He sees all the employees working. They're doing their job. It's the year after a famine. And lo and behold, Ruth catches his eye. Who is that? So he goes in verse 5, he asks the foreman who she is, and this is essential, the landowner's reply in verse 6. She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Now this changes everything because Boaz finally puts a face with a name. The text tells us he's heard of her. He knows who this is. So this is the Moabitess of this noble and worthy character. This is this inexplicable Proverbs 31 woman born in Moab who was so faithful inexplicably to Naomi. Here she is. Verse 11 tells us he's heard the word on the street about Ruth. Maybe Bethlehem functions like a small town. Everybody knows everybody's business. And he's heard about her lavish, extraordinary, unmerited Loyalty to Naomi, this haggard, old, destitute woman that the world would turn their nose up at. He knows Ruth is a widow. He knows that she was married before. He might know, as an aside, that she's been barren. Remember, they're in the same family. He would have known, presumably, that they had gone to sojourn. Perhaps he also knew that she was married for 10 years. That implies barrenness. I don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us. But it does say they're in the same family. So maybe, maybe not. He does know for sure that she's an ex-Moabite. And I do mean ex-Moabite. That's important. She's left her country, her family, and most importantly, she's left her tribal and familial gods, little g. She left them. He knows that. He knows a lot about this lady. 
He knows that she has inexplicably, how it has come to be, he doesn't know, embodied all the righteousness that's commanded in the book that he's been reading his whole life called the Torah. This Moabite girl. He sees her character. He sees in her character what it is to be a true Israelite. As another aside, doesn't say it here in Ruth, but do you know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab, the harlot, the Canaanite, pagan, idol-worshipping prostitute. That's his mom. Another godless young girl, in this case prostitution, who turned to the true and living God to become an Israelite indeed. His mom. (laughs) We could speculate on what impact that might have had on a man like Boaz. The text doesn't tell us. He does know for sure that the thing about her that's more important than her birth country and even the influence of her parents is that the living God appears very much to be at work in her heart. He sees that. And that matters to him. He sees her kindness to old Naomi and he matches it with the same kindness. This kindness bored born in the heart and character of God. Now, I said before, I left you hanging with why it mattered that the two laws, the kinsman redeemer and the leveret marriage, didn't match exactly. I said that mattered. Why? Because Boaz wasn't required by the law to show kindness and generosity to Ruth. He didn't have to, but he wasn't that kind of man doing only what he knew he had to do. How guilty are we of living that way? Boaz was not that kind of man. His heart had been refashioned and reshaped and brought into conformity with the heart of his God, which had been expressed in the written law of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that you can stand at the bottom of a sunbeam and read the words that the beam burns into the ground and see the commands of God and seek to obey them. And you can let your gaze run up the sunbeam and see what kind of God would give laws like that. Boaz knew him like that. And he had been transformed from fellowship with a righteous God who demanded righteous conduct from his people. He knew his God. He knew, in other words that a God who had produced laws of mercy and compassionate care for the weak and vulnerable like the kinsman redeemer and the leveret marriage must be a certain compassionate, lavishly kind and caring God. And Boaz said, I very much believe, if my God is like that, I don't care what I'm required to do, it will be my joy to exceed that and to bless this young girl, Ruth, because I know it is exactly what my God would do. He didn't only know the rules, he knew the rule giver. So we see exactly what he does in verses 8 through 16. He goes way, way above and beyond. Technically, he owed her nothing except to let her glean at the edges and give her any forgotten sheaves. That's all he owed her, according to the law, if read literalistically. He goes way above and beyond. He tells her, Don't go to any other field. Don't go looking. Stay right here in my field until the end of the harvest. You found your home. Stay put. 
Stay close to my maidservants. Work with them. You don't have to trail behind and pick up the scraps. You can work right shoulder to shoulder with them, harvesting, working, right in my fields. The days of the judges are dark days. Men were ruthless. Boaz knows this, I suppose, and he says, I'll make sure that none of my workers, potentially ruthless and barbarous as they are, lay a finger on you, not even a word. They will not be permitted to harass you. Boaz will see to it that such a thing would never happen to this young Moabite girl. He says, you can share their cool water that they'll draw. You don't have to draw it. And you can drink from their jars and rest when they rest. In fact, he invites her to a rich dinner where he wines and dines her. That would be my modern paraphrase of what the text says. It says that he let her dip her bread, morsel means bread, into his wine vinegar. That's verse 14. He gives her roasted grain. He treats her like a new groom would just rejoice to treat his new bride, bringing her out to the field. That's what Boaz does. He didn't have to do any of that. It's so lavish. It's so above and beyond. The narrator is at pains to help you see lavish generosity exuding from the heart of Boaz and landing squarely on the heart of Ruth, the Moabite. It's extraordinary. Verse 17 says that she carried home that day about an ephah of barley. Now, we don't know exactly how much, but one estimate, eight gallons of flour. Think about that. In one day, eight gallons of flour? That's a lot. That's enough for these two ladies to survive the winter. The fields would be barren and empty and cold and lifeless. But they have, in one day, enough flour to make it through the winter. This is lavish. When's the last time that any of you took a person who could pay you back nothing, brought them into your home, seated them in the best seat, gave them the best cup and the best plate and the best cut of meat, lavishly provided for them and said, I will meet all of your needs. It's extraordinary kindness that Boaz is pouring out onto the head of Ruth, and she would have been stunned. She did not see this coming. Kind-heartedness way beyond what was required. Maybe she would have said, why on earth are you doing all this for me, especially since I'm a Moabite? In fact, that is what she says in verse 10. Then she fell on her face. She's on the ground. She's so shocked. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She feels how over the top he has been to her. She feels it. She's struck by it. And now, at this point in the story, we're way beyond a glimmer of hope. Way past that. We are in full-on, this is too good, too good to be true mode. That's where we're at. I said before that Boaz's generosity, his lavish kindness is traceable right back up to the character of God, up the sunbeam. His character, it's unchanging. The theological word is, immutable. He has never changed. It wouldn't surprise us then that that extraordinary over-the-top generosity and kindness would show up over and over again in dealing with his people. If he's always the same, 
we would expect to see commonality in the way that he deals with his people. This is the wonder of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're meant to be shocked as you receive his kindness in the gospel. We don't always feel it. Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that God saved you. If you're a Christian, God saved you in that passage with a goal in mind. He wanted to show you something. He wanted you to spend eternity looking at something and being stunned. What was it? In Ephesians 2, he saved us, quote, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. How would he show you? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ruth was stunned at this kindness. It was so undeserved and unthinkable. A few verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, even when we were dead, because of this great love that he had for us, even when we were dead, he loved us, right? It's the same love. God never changes. His same character showed up in his dealings with Ruth in and through the conduct and character of Boaz and most brightly in the way the sun outshines the moon, most brightly through the passion, suffering, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said before that we all know intuitively, especially if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, we know things aren't right. We feel that things are wrong. Sometimes we feel it, sometimes we stuff it and suppress it, try and make it go away, drown it out with drugs or substances, be distracted by screens or whatever. If you're not a believer and you're here today, are you able to sit in a room in silence at peace? I doubt it. Because we know something's wrong. This is not how life is supposed to be. Our circumstances are broken. Our emotions are broken. Our families are broken. Our work feels vain and pointless and sometimes is, in a sense. Sometimes we feel like the author of Ecclesiastes and we say that this life under the sun is vanity and vanity. It is as meaningless and pointless as a wisp of smoke in the wind. Why am I striving this way? We grow jaded, we grow cynical, we grow bitter, we become mean. I know about you that you want the wrong things to be made right. You wish they could. You wish there could be a glimmer of hope, but maybe you don't feel like you have it. The character of God never changes. He's immutable, unchanging. Not for a really long time in the past, outside of time. You could say always, that language stretches to try to reach the reality. God is who he is, unchanging, in all places, at all times, outside of time, Words fail me. Unchanging. His great heart is like a cosmic and divine fountain of goodness and blessing out from which flows all of his glory and gives life to the whole world. He dealt with Ruth in the same way that he would find delight, even singing delight, according to the prophet Zephaniah, in dealing with you. 
He's good. The kindness of Boaz is made of the same material as the kindness of King Jesus. It's the same quality. It's the same kind of stuff. Kindness, generosity, are what are called communicable attributes. There are some attributes of God which can be communicated even to us. God is kind, we can be kind. But some attributes are not communicable. You know this. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. We are never going to be that, right? But kindness, the kindness of Boaz is made of the same material as the kindness of Jesus, but not the same degree, not the same magnitude. The kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially displayed in the gospel, is to the kindness of Boaz what the ocean is to a puddle on the beach. They're made of the same thing. But the kindness of Christ is a vast and endless ocean that never can be exhausted or dried up. And it's his great delight to shower it on all of his people for all eternity. That's what the cross is all about. That's what it's demonstrating. He's gone way beyond what could have been required of him, has the Lord Jesus, in the same way that Boaz did. Who could have ever demanded that Jesus must, in some obligatory way, be kind to them? No one. No one. Don't say in your hearts, bring Christ down from heaven, so says the Apostle Paul. No, it's wrong to even think you deserved anything. Harvey talked in our Sunday school about what Jesus said when he said, once you've done everything that Jesus commanded... Don't think you're anything special. Just say, I only did what I was supposed to do. The Gospel of Luke. But his kindness comes flowing to us like a gushing river down a great canyon. Nonetheless, he loves to give it. He loves to be kind to his people. He's not like us. He doesn't do only what's required by the letter of the law. He's not that kind of person. Just like Boaz wasn't that kind of person. If you look to the cross of Christ and you see where he stood in your place, you could think of it in different ways. He stood in my place as an individual. Or you could think he stood in our place as a church. Or you could expand it and you could say he stood in the place of all the saints in all times and all places hung there on the cross. And you look there and you see him and you see that great heart of love that loves to give, loves to bless the other, even at great sacrifice to himself. You, like Boaz, will be transformed from the inside out. If you look, as I said before, at the story on the micro level, you see this lavish kindness of Boaz to these two widows exceeding the requirement of the law but being kind to them in a way that's informed by and directly in keeping with the requirement of the law. It's not just random. It's just like God said, and it's my joy to exceed it. But if you look at the story of Ruth and you zoom out and you look at what you might call the macro level, you see the establishment of the Davidic kingdom and throne, the coming of a king into the kingless and lawless dark land of the judges. The establishment of this throne, which would never sit empty, to all eternity. I said before, there were all these pending promises. 
Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 49, and many others. And Ruth is one very important stone that you step on, so to speak, as you get across that river, climaxing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The throne of David is only important because the son of David would come later in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will never, never, never leave a vacancy on the throne. Never. He's risen from the dead, and he rules for all eternity. Ruth helps us get there. God works at the micro level, caring for Ruth, sovereignly presiding over the details of Naomi's life. And he works in all the details of our lives, the the good ones of chapter 2 and the bad ones that feel like chapter 1. He's sovereign over them all. But it's not like he just operates in two spheres, the micro and the macro. It's not like that. He uses the events of the micro, all the little granular details, in order to carry out what he's doing in the macro. They're not separate. He does things in real life with real people to accomplish his eternally devised plan to display the glory of Christ in the gospel. They go together. They're irreducibly intertwined. So when you suffer... You should take great comfort in understanding that there is a God who loves you and who is using even your specific suffering to advance his kingdom and the glorification of Christ to the ends of all the earth. I can't tell you exactly how, but he is doing it. There is no doubt about it. We should conclude back at the micro level Watching back at Naomi's story, the dark night of her soul at the end of chapter 2 will erupt in the flame of light and hope and joy. Her bitterness will evaporate like the dew on a blade of grass evaporates when the morning sun shines on it. No bitterness will remain in this woman for the rest of the book. Ruth comes home from the fields. She's heavily laden with like 30 or 40 pounds of grain and no joke, the leftovers from that lavish meal that she shared with Boaz. Naomi is stunned. She sent Ruth out a poor beggar in the morning, and she came home with like three or four months' worth of wages strapped on her back. Naomi's hungry for an explanation. She hears from Ruth that the name of the man in whose field she gleaned is Boaz. Ruth finally tells her at the end of chapter 2. This woman, once forlorn and bitter with furrowed brow, probably physically changed in her visage because of her suffering and grief, is now bursting with exuberant joy because Boaz is, according to verse 20, one of their family's redeemers. Not only that, but he's just been extraordinarily kind and gracious to Ruth, the Moabite. Naomi recognizes Boaz's name immediately. She knows who he is. And so the chapter concludes she is, unsurprisingly, very eager to encourage Ruth to accept Boaz's offer to continue to work at his fields until the barley and wheat harvest are over. The chapter concludes the two ladies settling down, living together, just two ladies in the house. Every morning, Ruth goes out to work in the field. Every afternoon, back she comes. She's resting in that way in the safety and security of the God of Israel, in the same way the little baby bird might rest 
under the wings of its mother in safety and security, which is exactly what Boaz says in verse 12. Under the wings of the God of Israel. Let's conclude. In chapter 1 of Ruth, we're brought face to face with the reality that God is sovereign over our suffering. And in chapter 2, we see an empty woman made full. It's not brought to fruition. There's a glimmer of hope. It's not done, but it sure looks promising. The dry, lifeless desert looks like it's ready to burst with fields of green and flowers of purple and green. That's what Naomi's looking at. In chapter 1, God takes away. In chapter 2, God gives a glimmer of hope that maybe he would restore what was lost. That's the micro level. But I want to leave you with the truth that God is building and connecting masterfully all the details of our lives, the joys and the sorrows, in a way that accomplishes the plan that he devised in eternity past. I'm saying that in your life, whether it's progressive neurological disorders or lung conditions or the loss of a child or economic distress or whatever, or in the joys of welcoming a new baby into the world. All of them, all the details of our lives, are part of God's masterful accomplishment of his plan to magnify his grace in the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Babies fit into the plan. Cancer fits into the plan. None of it is irrelevant. It's all pregnant with meaning. God is using the micro, the granular, the detailed parts of our lives to bring glory to Christ and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we know so because Ruth concludes with chapter 4 in the establishment of David's throne. You see the connection? All the details are getting you somewhere. You can't get there without the details. Just like the pyramids, ancient and towering in Egypt, only exist because they have in them the subatomic particles by which they consist. Can the pyramids exist? You have to have the granular to get the big. You've got to have both. So God has chosen in his mysterious wisdom. It is mysterious that suffering is a part of his plan. He's chosen, though, in his mysterious wisdom to construct his divine purpose of grace using the details of our lives. He was going to use sorrows and joys to get us to David. To bring a kingless land, a king, who would rule in righteousness. And what God had promised thousands of years before in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 49, seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, the descendant of Judah with the scepter forever, all those things and more he was bringing to fruition through the lives of the individuals in the book of Ruth. All your joys, all your sorrows are all ordained as integral, necessary, have to happen, must have them, can't leave them out. They need to be there, the joys and the sorrows. Building blocks of the eternal God to carry out his purpose 
so that the name of Jesus Christ will be as magnified as possible in and through our very lives. So let's go out of here today trusting his sovereign guidance, God help us, and his goodness and resting in his great, lavish, inexplicable, yet so real kindness and goodness to all of us.